0: Now to a subject close to the hearts of many music aficionados, jazz. St. Louis has played a big role in the history and evolution of jazz. That will certainly be acknowledged by our guest, Kevin Whitehead. He can be heard on this station as the jazz critic for NPR's Fresh Air. He's in town for an event, which we'll talk about, and he is the author of Why Jazz? and the soon-to-be-published Play the Way You Feel. Kevin, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's great great to to have have you. you.
1: Well, you're in the right town for jazz. I mean, after New Orleans, I guess we're right up there, aren't we? You're the first stop from people leaving New Orleans, and of course a lot of people coming from St. Louis itself. How do you differentiate jazz from other music? Why, how and why is it different? Um, Hmm. Improvisation is central to it, of course, Mm -hmm. and that's not uh, unique to jazz, but it's certainly one of its defining characteristics. And uh, the various African-American... Uh, aspects of it of the tradition to going back to a West African drum choirs, sort of evolving into like jazz rhythm sections, things like that.
0: Is, is that the most important influence, the African American uh, influence?
1: It's hard. It's hard to separate out all the influences uh, in jazz, but I would say that the, the African American strain is the most crucial. Even if someone from Indonesia is playing jazz, they're going to be reflecting African American aesthetics one way or another.
0: Well, are they playing jazz in, in Indonesia? Are they playing jazz in other parts of the world as as much as we do?
1: They have been, I don't know about as much as we do, but people have been playing jazz around the world pretty much as soon as they heard about it. Mm-hmm. You know, by the mid-20s, you had uh, jazz musicians in Indonesia, and a jazz uh, uh, practicum course was being taught at the conservatory in Frankfurt, mm-hmm. and you had uh, American musicians living in France and England, Canada. Not, But not everybody are, are fan is, is a fan of jazz. A lot of
0: people just kind of shrug their shoulders. They don't get it. What, what would you tell them? What would you tell them to
1: listen for and teach them how to appreciate that uh, genre? I guess i tell them to read the book that I wrote that was <laughs> sort of specifically addressing this subject, which is called Why Jazz? Uh-huh. From Oxford University Press, which, by the way, I'm going to be talking about at uh, Dr. Gerald Early's uh, book club tonight at 7 o'clock. At the, the Stewart Center for Jazz.
0: Over at Washington University? Where? where?
1: Uh, at the Stewart Center oh, for I, Jazz, right I, around the corner. Oh, I, I, was,
0: I was thinking of earlier being uh, at Washington University. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about that book and how you approached it and why you felt the need to to explain it to people.
1: I was uh, asked by the the press, uh, Oxford University Press. I can't talk so well today. Neither can I. I don't University know what press. it is. It's, it's the cold weather, I guess. I think it froze my tongue a little bit. <laughs> Um, an introduction to the music for people who didn't know about it that would also have information that would be of interest to people who did have some background in jazz. So Mm -hmm. part of it was trying to answer those basic questions like why do we listen to jazz at all or why do reissues have like three different versions of the same song Mm -hmm. on it, that kind of thing. And also looking at, in particular, jazz since 1980, trying to uh, sort of present a kind of organized view of what's going on in that period, because I saw a lot of jazz histories, they'd get very vague once you got past the 1970s.
0: Oh really? I wonder why that would be. I mean, with uh, with our ability to to communicate these days, you would think just the opposite.
1: I think it was the fact that there were so many different strains of jazz that were coming along at that time that um, writers would sort of divide them up uh, into different streams, and I wanted to really look at things sort of decade by decade and see the things that, say, uh, Wynton Marsalis's conservative jazz and Muhal Richard Abrams' uh, more radical jazz had in common.
0: Well, there you go. I mean, this is, this is one of the things that I think uh, people who maybe are not really into it uh, don't know about. You talk about radical jazz. What is radical jazz?
1: Radical jazz, I guess, is the kind that um, people like to complain about. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. Free jazz, the avant-garde of the 1960s, there was... Um, a revolution in jazz at that time. People coming up with, with new modes of uh, expression that were sometimes more dissonant and more high energy than some earlier forms of jazz. And so a lot of people uh, found that kind of harder to take. But now it's 50 years later, so I think we can probably get our heads around uh, the kinds of things that musicians were starting to do at that time.
0: Who were some of those in the 60s that were so prominent and really influential?
1: Oh, I'd say the main ones would be Ornette Coleman, John Coltrane, Albert Eiler, and Cecil Taylor mm-hmm. probably be the, the top four, all of whom were developing the music in slightly different ways from each other. Well, it certainly has changed over the years. Let, let's go back.
0: Let's go back to the early days. Now, when would that be? I mean, are we going back to the 30s? Are we going back beyond that? I mean, we have ragtime prior
1: to There is—people— they always talk about the, the the beginning of jazz as if suddenly one day there was no jazz yeah. and the next day there was. But mm. jazz is like anything else. It kind of evolved out of things that were around beforehand. So definitely ragtime was the the main influence on jazz. In fact, early jazz, the practitioners of it usually referred to it as ragtime up until the late teens. Yeah. Um, so it probably starts sometime around 1900, probably in New Orleans, and first turns up on record around 1916, 1917, depending on which records you think are the first. Which, uh, w- why New Orleans? Why was it the hotbed and the the origin of all of this? A couple of reasons. One is, one important aspect of jazz is uh, a rhythmic strain that's influenced a lot by Cuban rhythms. And there was much more commerce between Cuba, Q- uh, Havana and New Orleans than any other uh, ports in mm-hmm. the United States. Also, you had uh, the educated class of Creole musicians. Um, mixed-race Creole musicians in New Orleans who had a fine instrumental technique, who blended with country musicians who were used to playing in kind of rowdy brass bands uh, mm-hmm. uh, out in rural areas. And when they came together, there was sort of this slow and gradual kind of coming together of their their two aesthetics.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's go to, move to the 20s and the 30s and talk about jazz as perhaps closer to what we know today in many ways. Who were the, the, the practitioners then that we would know
1: about and should know about? The, the, well, Louis Armstrong, of course, mm-hmm. the first great jazz soloist. I mean, I think jazz was more of a collective art beforehand. If you think of, uh, say, Dixieland music, or New Orleans-style music, where everybody is sort of playing at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then someone like Armstrong, he really had the need to be able to improvise in a less interrupted way. So they began. Musicians began to carve out space for a soloist in uh, in these re- recordings. In particular, Armstrong's Hot Fives uh, huh. were really uh, very important as far as that goes in the mid twenties. Do we put Duke Ellington into the mix? We certainly do. Uh, Ellington went uh, into the Cotton Club about was it 1927? I think 1928. He'd already been working in New York for a few years. He originally came from Washington D.C. I shy away from superlatives when I talk about jazz, but Ellington was the greatest. He was the the most comprehensive composer, Uh, wrote fabulously lyrical music that might have a kind of um, simplicity in the melodic line that might just have like a, based on a pentatonic scale, like you would find in in folk musics, and a fantastic sense of the timbre of instruments, uh, partly based on close observation of what his musicians were doing. He cultivated... Eccentric soloists and like to write pieces of music that would sort of cater to their eccentricities, like, and of, and of like course, wawa brass playing.
0: Uh, yeah, well, he, he was a band leader. I mean, it was a large ensemble that he was uh, directing with his music. At the time, as opposed to a soloist, a Louis Armstrong,
1: for instance. Yeah, but yeah. there were some some great soloists in the Ellington band in the, in the twenties. You mentioned that he was more melodic, and that's that's what I see. I can.
0: I can hum uh, Duke Ellington's songs, and I can whistle his songs, but I can't do it to a lot of the people today. Um, it's, let's, it's, let's, it's harder. Yes, I agree it, with you on that. Yeah. Um, you brought some music along with you that we'd like to hear that perhaps you can uh, instruct us to how uh, some of this is different from what people of my vintage might be uh, more familiar with. Well, which would you like to listen to first? And uh, um, you,
1: Why don't we listen to uh, uh, Christian Scott, uh, Atunde Adjua, And his piece, um, The
0: Reckoning. The Reckoning. Let's listen to that, and you can tell us actually what we're listening to.
1: Well, I would have to think that this is a very recent vintage. Yes, it's uh, from uh, an EP that came out last year called Mm -hmm. Ruler Rebel. What Uh, sets it apart? First of all, I should mention uh, Christian Scott Atunde Adwoa is a trumpet player from New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So he has that connection back to uh, the early days. Mm -hmm. And um, what fascinates me about this music is how he's using modern kind of post-hip-hop production techniques, using drum machines and things like that, but still manages to get this kind of iconic uh, New Orleans um, brass sound in it. And this idea of uh, music being made in a resonant space. New Orleans is a place where people make a lot of the physical environment. You used to hear these stories about how Buddy Bolden, the first great jazz cornet player of the early years of the century, could be heard playing miles away. Mm -hmm. Or so the story goes. Mm -hmm. And uh, as brass bands would say, move through a neighborhood, you'd have this thing happening where sometimes you could hear the sound very clearly and sometimes it would be obscured by houses in the way. So the sound would kind of come in and out. And there's a sense of that same kind of uh, uh, sound moving in and out in this piece of music. So what I like about it is... I'm always on about the idea that jazz reinvents itself out of its root materials. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a good example of how someone does something that's it's really contemporary but also acknowledges the kind of uh, distant early days of the music. You mentioned hip-hop a moment ago. Is there an influence, a
0: jazz influence on hip-hop or vice versa?
1: I would say both. Yeah. Certainly in early hip-hop, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the samples that were used behind rappers were drawn from vintage jazz records, mm-hmm. particularly of uh, hard bop records of the 50s and 60s. But then a few years after that, we began to see generations of musicians coming along who had always had hip-hop in their lives, the mm-hmm. way a previous generation had grown up on, on rock music, let's say. And so that seeps into their sense of rhythm and their sense of uh, uh, what's acceptable and what can be manipulated in a jazz-like way.
0: Yeah, you know, See, I see hip-hop. I'm not an aficionado by any stretch of the imagination. But you know, I see it as, as just
1: a beat. I don't hear much music there, per se. Well, this isn't the place to debate that, I would say. But yeah. certainly the beat is a good starting point. Yeah. You know, it's um, there was a time when uh, particularly hip-hop beats, you would hear jazz drummers kind of uh, quote them in a self-conscious way. And then sometime maybe about 15 years ago or so, it sounded like they really kind of incorporated those hip-hop mm-hmm. beats into a much more free-flowing kind of yeah. uh, uh, jazz aesthetic. Yeah. So I think it's just a question of what musicians grow up with, what seems like... Um, you know, music of their own time.
0: Okay, well, let's not debate that now. But I have some other <laughs> thoughts on it. But I better not get into them. <laughs> let's uh, let's have some more music, though. Well, uh, what is your next choice here, and how is it going
1: to be different from what we just heard? Uh, let's listen to uh, the clarinet player Andy Biskin. All right. Uh, he has a piece called I can't read my own handwriting anymore. Muskrat. Muskrat. Thank you. Which is a children's song from the Kentucky Coal Country, I believe. And this has but, vocal as uh, well? It. Uh, no, it's an it's oh. instrumental version. Andy Biskin, the clarinet player, was an assistant in the 1970s to the folklorist Alan Lomax. Mm-hmm. So his recent album was taking songs that Alan Lomax had collected and presenting kind of modern uh, versions of it for an unusual ensemble. The lineup of this band is clarinet, drums, and three trumpets. Oh. I can't think of another band that has quite that instrumentation. Yeah, well, let's give a listen.
0: back with Kevin Whitehead,
1: listening to A Little Muskrat. That seems very, very playful to me. I would certainly agree. I mean, it's a, in keeping with the fact that it's a children's song is the, uh, the beginning of the material. And it's a good example of how, for a lot of jazz musicians, the simpler the initial material, the more elaborately you can play variations on it. And in the course of this piece, uh, which goes on for a few minutes longer, you can hear all sorts of influences uh, coming out, kind of uh, Aaron Copeland, Western movie scores, uh, the kind of folk jazz that was sort of popular in the late 50s, um, presented by people like the clarinet player Jimmy Giuffre, and sort of uh, loose congregational church singing where the lead voice would lay, lay, lay out a line and then this kind of loose unison response would come from the members of the congregation. You know, you talk about improvisation, and obviously that's a big part of the
0: jazz picture, but uh, are any of these notes written down beforehand, and then they kind of go from there?
1: Yeah, I think in this particular case, most of the music was sketched out in advance. There are some tricky key changes in there and things, which are clearly not spontaneous. But there's always um, something, you know, there's always some improvised content there. Even let's, if it's just in um, uh, different ways of, of playing variations on on written material.
0: Yeah. Well, let's uh, as time begins to get away, let's go to our third. Now, this is a vocal, and vocal, uh, ob- obviously, performance is a big part of, of jazz and has been since day one, I assume. Am I correct you on that? You are. All righty. Well, let's, this is uh, Cecile McLaurin-Savant. Is that the correct pronunciation? I believe it, it is? is, yeah. Okay. From and, her uh, brand-new
1: album, The Window.
0: The Window. Let's give a listen to uh, her. Hand in hand. Have I lived to see the milk and honey land where hate's a dream and love forever stands? Or is this a vision in my Kevin, that's a lot easier for me to listen to than some of the <laughs> radical things that we were talking about earlier. This is, this is how I see jazz. I mean, that's just my particular personal taste.
1: We didn't mention what the song is that she's yeah. singing here, but it's a Stevie Wonder tune from 1973, Visions. Um, I think Cecile McLaurin savon is a fantastic singer. That's mm-hmm. one reason I wanted to listen to her today. And um, it's a reminder that jazz continues to generate great singers like herself. And also a reminder that musicians are so influenced by the kind of thing that they grew up with. You know, this Stevie Wonder's music would have been something that was in her ears all along. And kind of shows how the jazz repertoire has kind of changed a lot since the time when most musicians were playing songs from like Broadway or the movies. You know, Mm -hmm. that kind of traditional American pop song. Why is this called jazz, though? It's so different from...
0: Train, and so different from uh, some of the other performances that we've even heard here
1: today because it still has that kind of creative improvisational aesthetic behind it mm-hmm. you know she and the piano player sullivan fortner they have a, a really nice rapport um and I, I really like the intimacy of this sound also
0: yeah. well, but certainly they they
1: sat down and went over this before she started singing. oh yeah they yeah. clearly they're uh, very well rehearsed she's yeah. Super conscientious about these things.
0: Well, I guess it, with jazz, as with most things, and certainly m- music, you take out of it, uh, you know, what you will, and f- it's not for everybody. But uh, it's not all the same either. There's plenty of variety.
1: Yeah, and it's not like everybody has to like everything, you know. Although sure. I'll say, with the reviews that I do on Fresh Air, I try to give a sense of uh, the breadth of modern jazz, which involves some of that uh, more difficult music from Mm -hmm. time to time. Do you like everything? I like pretty much everything I review on the radio. Mm -hmm. Do I like everything? No. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody likes everything. But I also recognize that we all have uh, deaf spots, let's call them, people who are great, but maybe we aren't personally so fond of what they do. Mm -hmm.
0: You're you're in town for an event uh, tomorrow night. We should talk about that a little bit, because you're talking about a yet-to-be-published book. Correct, that uh, is dealing with jazz and films, that, that history. That sounds really fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you think so. Uh, the book is called Play the Way You Feel, and it's due out from Oxford sometime next year. And um, it's a look from a jazz perspective at movies that take jazz as subject matter. Um, and also a few films in which there are uh, scenes in which jazz intrudes on the narrative for mm. uh, a few minutes. Intrudes on the narrative. Just takes narrative. over? Uh, like there's a, there was a movie a couple of years ago called Genius about the relationship between the editor Maxwell Perkins and the writer, um, Thomas Wolfe. Mm -hmm. And at one point, Thomas Wolfe feels that Perkins is cutting too much of his prose. So he decides to take Perkins up to Harlem to hear the jazz music that inspires his prose. And it's sort of unique in jazz films in that you see a lot of people who love jazz in the movies and you see a lot of people who hate it. But Maxwell Perkins is the perfectly jazz-indifferent person. He listens mm-hmm. to the music and then excuses himself and goes home and goes right back to slashing away at Thomas <laughs> Wolfe's prose mm-hmm. as if hearing jazz hadn't hadn't changed a thing for him.
0: What, what are some of the early movies in which uh, th- this sort of thing was featured? Jazz was a, was a character, if you will.
1: Well, of course, the, f- the first talking picture, the first talking feature film, The Jazz yeah. Singer with Al-, Al Jolson. Everybody always says Al Jolson wasn't really a jazz singer, and that's true. But he was a jazz whistler. He does a fantastic uh, uh, whistling solo on "Tut Tut Tootsie" yeah. in that film, which is quite remarkable. And there were a few other early ones. There was a, from nineteen twenty-nine. There's a a Rudy Valley film, and uh, the name of which I am completely blanking on at this time. The v- the vagabond something. How embarrassing! Where he's a, a, a mail order saxophonist who. Uh, Ups his game to the point where he can go on the radio and uh, impersonate uh, a name band leader. There's also a 1929 film called Street Girl in which a violinist from Eastern Europe becomes uh, embroiled with a jazz band in New York. Are these still available? Can they I find are, them on Netflix? <laughs> you can find some of them on YouTube and yep. some of them on Netflix, I think. Most of them are around somewhere or other.
0: I think I've got a lot of studying to do to catch up on my jazz uh, jazz knowledge. But I appreciate, Kevin Whitehead, your being here. I should point out that uh, you're going to be appearing tomorrow night at 7 o'clock at the Jazz St. Louis Whittaker Jazz Speaks Play the Way You Feel event. That's the Grants View branch of the St. Louis County Library. You'll have a good crowd there, I'm sure. I'm hoping so. Great to We're have gonna you We're going to show some
1: clips, it'll, it'll be nice, I think. Oh, that's some
0: film clips. Some yeah. of these old mm-hmm. f- Oh, great. That's going to be great. 7 o'clock tomorrow night. Kevin Whitehead, thank you. You are welcome. Great to see you.